This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happiest Mother Podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome back Dr. Becky Kennedy to the show. Dr. Becky is a clinical psychologist, mom of three, and the founder of Good Inside. Chances are you've probably seen Dr. Becky on Instagram as her community has grown to over 1 million followers. She's no stranger to the show. She was on episode 41 talking about our child's triggering behavior and how to manage it. And she was recently on episode 134 talking about school anxiety. Today, Dr. Becky is here to talk about her new debut book called Good Inside. In this episode, we learn about Dr. Becky's story and how this book came about. And we explore her guiding principles and her approach to parenting that is written about in the book that makes her perspective so unique and different. In this episode, we talk about ways of interpreting our child's behavior. We talk about what our goal really truly is as parents. And we talk about the importance that resilience plays when raising children. So many good nuggets in this episode. Let's hear this conversation with Dr. Becky Kennedy. When was the last time you truly felt like yourself? If you're not sure about the answer, it's time to think about your mental health. As moms, we often put ourselves on the back burner. From the moment our babies are born, our days and nights are full of responsibility, leaving it hard to sleep well, eat properly, exercise, or take care of ourselves. The more we neglect our own needs, the worse our mental health can become, leading to depression, anxiety, or other mental health struggles. But your mental health matters. The Happiest Mother Wellness Center can help. We have a growing team of mom therapists across Canada ready to offer teletherapy services. With teletherapy, you can save time and hassle by accessing virtual appointments from anywhere on your desktop, laptop, tablet, or phone. We know you're busy, so we make it as simple as possible to connect with a therapist. It's time to put yourself back on the priority list. Visit happyasamother.co slash book to schedule your free consult today. That's happyasamother.co slash book. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we're dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. We all had expectations going into motherhood, but reality often has a different plan. Let's work together in shattering unrealistic expectations, letting go of shame and guilt, and accepting where we are on our motherhood journey. We'll pack a toolbox for motherhood with expert advice, practical tips, relatable stories, real moments, and honest conversations. My goal is to give you the knowledge, tools, and resources you need to parent more freely. However, this podcast should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. It's time to do motherhood differently, toss out the idea of perfect, and enjoy the journey. Let's dive in. Dr. Becky, thank you so much for joining the show today. I am so excited to talk about your new book, your other, your what, fourth child now? I feel like you've got a few also professional children, the membership and a few other things kicking around, but this book baby into the world, thank you for joining us. 
Oh, thank you. And yes, it does feel like another child. That's such a nice introduction. I'm excited to talk about it with you. I remember when your page transitioned and sort of rebranded into Good Inside. I've been around the block. I've been here a little while. You know, we go a little ways back. So I remember when it came out and it just made so much sense for your messaging. And I'm curious when the book emerged in this growth and development you've been having. Yeah. So, you know, I launched an Instagram page, like kind of on a whim. Like I basically had been working on this sleep product for kids that was inspired by my own toddler's sleep issues. And I was like, I'm not going to let her just like vomit and cry it out. And her, like, I knew I wasn't doing any of that. So I was like, what do I know about attachment? What do I know about internal family systems? How can I make that concrete? And in making this product, my younger sister said, well, if you're going to ever put out a product into the world, you've got to have an Instagram account. And so I actually decided the ideas behind the product were more interesting than the plastic. So I abandoned that. By, by that point, I'd done so much writing. So I launched Instagram March 2020, right? And I had a lot to say right? So Mm. I look back now on those early posts and I was like, wow, you were like posting essays. Like, I can't believe anyone (laughs) like read that, but they did, which was lovely. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. So because my posts were so dense, it didn't take that long. Maybe after a couple of months, I started getting contacted by book agents and publishers. Like you've got a book in you. And to be honest, for the first number of months, I was like, I don't really have a book in me. Like I have a lot of posts and I'm just not going to put out a book that's a collection of my posts. Like, not because that's so wrong. I just, like, that didn't feel like me. So I was like, I don't have a book Mm. to write. Like, I don't know. And then toward the end of 2020, and this point I was going on this, like, new writing kick for, like, right, seven months, maybe a little longer, I realized, like, everything I wrote came back to these, like, same principles. And Mm. as I started to think about that, I started to write in a different way. Instead of these snapshots, I kept thinking about these principles and how no matter what came up in my private practice over the years, no matter what I was talking about now with parents on Instagram or in workshops, I was like, wow, everything that comes back to these. And I really, I was like, I want to write these down because what I always say to parents is more important than knowing a strategy or a script, which still is important because it just helps us in the moment, is having a foundation of how to think through things. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a foundation of how to think through tricky things with your kids, you can empower yourself with that. That is so much more empowering than asking, what am I supposed to say? More empowering than what am I supposed to say is what's going on here? What do I know? What do I know in general? And how does that apply here? And then we all need a little help applying it. But that foundation is critical. Mm -hmm. And then if we're based in a foundation, guess what? Now we have a parenting approach that works for our kid's whole life. Because the principles of what humans need in infancy and toddlerhood and elementary and teenage and adulthood they're all the same. We always need the same thing. The tweaks are a little different. Mm-hmm. But when I started thinking about these principles, honestly, I was like, I want to write a book because I can't write this type of stuff in such an organized way, in a whole arc, like a whole story on Instagram. It actually doesn't work to have it as snapshots. I want to have it all in one place. And then, as I think you know, like what I love doing the most, what I actually get like adrenaline from is thinking about how to translate like deep psychological ideas into like absurdly practical, concrete, simple scripts and strategies. So I was like, now I have my book. I want to put my 10 principles out there, but they're not theoretical. They're very like non-jargony and even their strategies in those chapters. And then I want to go through the 20 most common kind of problems I've seen parents come to my practice to talk about. And I want to break down each problem for like what's really going on based on those principles. And then 
how could we translate those principles into strategies and scripts and how could we apply them in that behavior? So like lying or sibling arguments or hitting or tantrums or shyness, right? So the beginning of the book really are these 10 principles that I haven't ever written anywhere, right? And then Mm. the end of the book, these 20 kind of chapters at the end, I feel like are just like a handbook. Like you don't have to read them all. You can read them as we know, like they're all going to happen. Like all those problems are going to happen because we have humans Mm -hmm. as kids and they go through all these things. But that's like the most practical handbook aspect of the book. Mm -hmm. The foundation, as you said, the messaging, the beliefs, the shifts in our lenses and how we perceive our children and behavior really happen in that first part. And then, as you said, those practical pieces to keep coming back to or troubleshoot are also there, which I love how it's laid out. I'm a big fan, neurodivergent, and like attention span is short. So I love like a practical chapter that tackles a subject and can be flipped through. So I love the format of it as well. The title of the book being also the first principle. And I love this idea and concept. Can we unpack? good inside as a principle and a perspective? Yes. And thank you for asking me that because it's my favorite thing to talk about. Everyone might be like, yeah, duh. It's like the title of your book and everything. So we guessed <laughs> you, you know, we would have guessed we, you like talking about that. So the idea that we are good inside, like at first glance, I'm like, it's like so obvious, like, of course, like who wouldn't believe that? Right. But I actually think it's like a revolutionary idea related to how we you know, can treat ourselves and how we can approach our kids, especially relative to kind of like the behaviorism that's just almost been accepted as truth in human development and in education, Mm. right? I feel like behaviorism as a theory has like moved somehow from the fiction shelf to like the nonfiction shelf in the library, like over the years, you know, and it's just accepted as true. What I mean by behaviorism, right, is or really like behavior shaping, is the idea of looking at people and definitely kids as like a collection of behaviors to shape, Hmm. right? So a kid hits uh, her brother, right? And if that's a problem over and over, we think like, how do I stop the hitting? How do I stop the hitting, right? And now to be clear, like I would never say to someone like, wow, what a beautiful expression of feelings your child is. No, (laughs) of course, like we want to stop the hitting, okay? But you have a child who is hitting. You have a child who's struggling with something and that struggle is manifesting as hitting. You have a child who's missing a key emotion regulation skill and because they don't have that skill, the emotions are overwhelming and come out as hitting. That's looking at behavior as a clue, Mm -hmm. not as the kind of indicator of who someone is, right? It's Mm -hmm. like looking at a leak in the ceiling, And instead of thinking, okay, how do I just get rid of the leak as fast as possible? I'm going to duct tape it. Like, okay. But most of us would say like, okay, yeah, yeah, the leak's a problem. But like, we better figure out what's leading to the leak. Like, even Mm. if it takes us a little longer, we got to temporarily plug it. But that's not a solution. Even if I taped it every day, I can't imagine anyone would be like, Becky, wow, you are taking good care of your house. Like, they'd be like, figure that out, you know? And so... I think in this more behavioral approach, because when we just see the behavior, the hitting, this is what I would do. I would do sticker charts. I would punish my kid. I would give them a timeout. I would do anything to kind of control that behavior. Mm. And nobody with those approaches ever says, you know, we believe children are bad inside. And so you have to do these things to control them. No one says that. right? And I don't believe anyone consciously believes that. But 
we only control things we don't trust. Like, I just think control and trust are opposites. Hmm. And we only have to shape behavior if we kind of don't believe that there's some good core inside that would come out if the conditions, you know, were right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the idea that we're good inside, to me, not only is really a revolutionary idea, it also is, by the way, for us too, right? We spiral as parents because we see the yelling at our kids as a sign of who we are, not as a struggle we had, Mm. right? We even say to ourselves, oh, well, that's letting ourselves off the hook. That's like the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Why is that letting yourself off the hook? You're actually just trying to remember you're a good person. That's going to help you change. That's not going to give you an excuse not to change. That's going to actually help you change. But beyond all that, the idea that you're good inside, to me, it creates a gap. And I think, you know, I love having a gap in my knowledge because then I can be curious and like think creatively. And what's the gap? Well, if I see my daughter who's hitting as good inside, I can say, okay, I have a kid who's good inside. She's good inside. Becky, she's a good kid. Like, I see her as a good kid having a hard time, not a bad Mm -hmm. kid doing bad things. I see her as good and her behavior as not good. Mm -hmm. And then I can wonder, why would a kid who's good inside be doing such a not great thing? Huh. Hmm. Now I can wonder. And in that wondering space, I'm going to come up with an intervention that's completely different than if I see her behavior as a sign of her identity. So really, the Mm -hmm. idea of good inside, it allows us to separate our behavior, from our identity. And not only do I think that's key to helping kids develop in a healthy way, I also think it's key to us adults, you know, reclaiming Mm -hmm. our self-worth, you know, and rewiring ourselves uh, in that process. Mm -hmm. The difference between I am a bad mom or I am a good mom or I am just neutral, I'm just a mom who made a bad choice in that situation or had a, you know, reaction in that moment takes it as being a flaw in ourselves and like externalizing it. It's not, I'm not the problem. It's not me. It's not my flaw in some way. Yeah. The idea that we're good inside allows us to like really feel our feet on the ground. Like I'm a good person inside, right? Not like I'm a good person. Like I'm better than other people. Like I'm good. Like I have inherent goodness. And this latest thing I did yeah. Like I'm saying, anyone would agree. Not great. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. a great thing. And honestly, <laughs> it just didn't feel great to me either. That's the thing. Like we don't feel right. good when we yell at our kids. Our kid doesn't feel good when they hit their sister. Like nobody feels good like that. They are struggling. Mm. They are struggling. Right. I always think, and I think a good most metaphor for it and how we approach this so differently, because I know there's skepticism. People are like, I feel like you're not preparing your kid for the real world by like not coming down mm. harshly on them. Or people say like, I feel like if you don't punish them, it's like you're reinforcing that behavior, okay? So here's what I think. A lot of people I know, right, we want to teach our kids how to swim. They do not come into the world knowing how to swim. So if you're with your kid in, let's say, a pool and you're teaching them how to swim and now you're, you know, you're a little bit longer in the process. So you kind of like let go of them. You think maybe they can figure it out, but they don't, right? And so you, you hold them, right? You're like, okay, I guess you're not totally independently swimming. I just don't know one person who'd be like, I'm going to send my kid to their room. I'm going to send them to the room. Because if I Mm. don't, they're going to think that I think it's okay that they like don't know how to swim and I would never want to give them that message. So I'm going to punish them. Like, Mm. I want to see the swim teacher who would get hired, you know, with that philosophy. (laughs) I think you'd be like, what? Like that literally doesn't even make sense. You think by not punishing your kid, they're going to think it's okay that they're not swimming? Number one, what if they inherently want to learn how to swim? 
Number two, what are they going to do in their room that's going to help them learn how to swim? Like how how does mm. your how does your system work? <laughs> no, like you don't have to punish someone. Actually, punishing someone is the most counterintuitive thing there. Like it makes no sense. It is completely ineffective. You would think they're not swimming independently yet. We're not there yet. This is hard, and I need to help them learn a skill. Mm-hmm. My basketball coaches don't get hired when they say, "You know what I do to help my kids make more layups? I put them in a closet and make them sit alone." You know what I do? I say, hey, why don't you make layups like that person? You know what I do? No, you teach them how to do layups. And some kids need Mm. longer than others. You teach them skills. And nobody thinks as a basketball coach, someone would learn better when you yell at them. No one would learn by saying, hey, you you were horrible in the game yesterday. You know, yeah, that's going to make your player play well in the game today. Like no coach gets hired that way either. It's like such an antiquated way of thinking about things. And so kids are good inside. We are good inside. Even if you've said all the things to your kids that I just said here, yeah, I say them because I've said them to my own kids, right? Like, but I'm still good Mm. inside and so are you. But I think the framework, my kids good inside and they need skills. They need my help bringing that goodness out because they come into the world with all the feelings I have. They come fully able to feel with no skills to manage feelings. They're just raw live wires. That's why they look like Mm. live wires sometimes. But the (laughs) answer isn't that they're bad or that their feelings are the problem. The answer is they need our help building all the skills for life for those feelings. Mm -hmm. And everything in the book really comes out of that framework. Yeah. And in that example that you highlighted, like, they want to learn how to swim. They want to learn the skills. So if you, like, take them out of the situation or deal with just the symptom or the behavior... Your child who wants to learn to manage their distress is still left without that skill, right? And one of the things in the book that you talk about is the most generous interpretation. And I love this as like just a practical skill and tool because it is really easy for me, like in all like confessional honesty, to want to fly off the handle when my kid like back talks or catches an attitude or just something that feels disrespectful. And like, I want to react to the symptom, to the behavior. And then when I stop and I pause and I'm like, okay, it's a Friday afternoon after an entire week of outdoor camp in the blazing hot summer with, you know, limited whatever, whatever, I can see, you know what, they're probably exhausted. And I can interpret the situation differently than if I'm just like, I do not tolerate your disrespect, you know? So it's interesting. So that exact topic. So we, I just did this triggers workshop because the thing to me about working on triggers is like triggers are the unlock to our parenting. It's why so many parents and they, they learn the strategies. They watch the videos and then they're like, why can't I do it in the moment? And then it makes them feel bad. Like something must be wrong with me because I know I've read the books. Like I know I've done this, right? And it's why I think our approach is so different because we combine all the stuff for your kids with the stuff for yourself. Mm. Because if we don't kind of have some strategies to manage our triggers, all the stuff we're learning for our kids, it's like behind a door. Like when I say working on ourselves is the unlock, like it literally unlocks the door. And someone said this to me, they're like, all the work I've done at Good Inside Around Triggers, all it meant was now I like, I can actually benefit from everything I've learned for my kids. Like it was just wasted almost before that was just waiting, Mm. right? So this is a great use for MGI, what I call most generous interpretation. So Erica, you like me, and my guess is everyone listening here can come up with an LGI, Mm -hmm. least generous interpretation, (laughs) way more easily. 
than an MGI. And there's an evolutionary reason for this. Our bodies are meant to look for problems to help us seek out threat and stay safe. So we are actually oriented that way. It's actually a sign of all that's working. It just happens to be inconvenient with respect to our personal relationships, right? So we can thank our bodies and find a new way. But most of us have an LGI of our kids' difficult behavior. And actually practicing the difference, okay, my LGI is this of a certain behavior in my kid, and my MGI is this. It's like a new muscle. And most of our LGIs, this is so interesting. I don't know if you thought about this, Erica. It centers ourself versus centering our kids. Because Mm. when we struggle, probably our parents centered themselves. So for example, let's say you told your kid, Dinner is in half an hour. No, you can't have pretzels before dinner, you know? And then, you know, you go to the kitchen and if your kids are like my kids, they're like maybe eating pretzels, right? And then we think, (laughs) you do not respect me, right? It's like, Mm. well, like I can just speak for myself. If my husband, this actually did happen recently. He was like, I'm cooking a nice meal tonight. He's like, please don't do that thing you do where you like eat a lot of chocolate right before dinner because like I'm making a nice meal and I'd like you to like come hungry. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then like later that day, I just like, you know, he literally did, I'm not joking, like catch me eating a couple Hershey's Kisses. But I promise you, and I think you know this about me, like I wasn't doing that because I don't respect my husband. Like I was doing that because I had the urge for chocolate. And like, if you're in my mind, a normal human being, that's just like a hard urge to resist at any age. Like when you're right. So (laughs) I had trouble with an urge. It wasn't about my husband. Like, you know, it really, really wasn't. And so, so many times we interpret our kids' behavior as a sign of disrespect in us, as opposed to a skill they're lacking in themselves. And then the irony is we get in our way again of building the skill. Mm. But actually just practicing that, like if everyone has a trigger behavior, maybe it is like talking back, right? Actually writing, what is my most generous interpretation? What is my most generous interpretation of my kids saying, no, I'm not cleaning up my room when I ask them to clean up my room? My least generous interpretation probably is centering myself. You don't respect me, right? Mm. My most generous interpretation, hmm, well, why would I say no to my husband, right, in that way? Um, My most generous interpretation is it's hard to do the things that other people tell you to do when you don't want to do them. You know, like Mm. that's true. Mm -hmm. If my husband was like, please, you know, put your clothes away before dinner, and I said no, it's probably like, oh, you know, or maybe it's, oh, my, my kid needs to feel more connected to me to cooperate more often. And actually Mm. setting an MGI of a trigger event as your phone reminder three times a day, just when you don't need it. Like, you know, you're like, my kid's at school. I'm not even like with them, but it's just like- You're not in the moment. Yeah. Exactly. I always think we have to practice skills outside the moment to have any chance of accessing them in the moment because we're in a physiologically Mm. activated state. So if we haven't been building this new circuit when we're calm, why would our body start building a circuit when we're activated. Mm. We don't build in those moments. We just rely on what we have, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's really powerful. And yes, I think the most generous interpretation, what's the most generous interpretation of my kid's tantrum? What's the most generous interpretation of why my kid would say, I hate you? Number one, I think it's the most accurate, but it's like a trick to see the good kid under the bad behavior. It's like the good inside principle in action. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, 
with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed. But the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Ashirina Reem's Psyched Mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create all the rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com slash rage and save with code rage20. That's momwell.com slash rage, code rage20. I imagine that the pushback is like, oh, but then they're getting away with or we're being too easy or that doesn't prepare them for life. Like I know that this sort of respectful, responsive parenting gets a lot of that kind of pushback, right? Yeah. Now you're just, you're setting me up for my favorite questions ever. No, I really mean this. Like I completely understand the skepticism and I Mm. I love skepticism. I feel like it it like sits next to curiosity and I'm a fan of curiosity. So I'm a fan of its cousin, Mm. you know, skepticism. So I totally get it. And what I can tell everyone listening is, like the whole good inside approach, it is really parenting in the long run. Like I want your kids to be resilient and able to deal with hard things for sure. So there is this belief, well, like if I'm not delivering the consequences, like I'm not preparing my kid because you know what's going to happen if my kid says I hate you to their boss, like they're going to get fired. So I Mm. need to send my kid to their room. Okay. Here's why I think that really, really fails, right? 
let's just start with the swim example. I don't know a parent who's saying, well, I'm letting my kid go in the pool because, I mean, they have to learn how to swim in the ocean, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, they have to learn how to swim in the ocean. But I can't imagine that just like leaving them on their own in the pool is like the best way to get there. Probably the best way to swim in the current is to learn how to swim in safer waters. Mm. Oh, I'm going to cry now. I've never actually said that. But I'm going to cry thinking about that because our kids' earliest years with us are like, hopefully they're safer waters. That doesn't mm. mean they demand safe waters when they get older. Kids who learn to swim well in pools become kids who are able to swim in the ocean mm. because they've developed skills and confidence, right. right? So I think that's really the same idea. The other thing I would say is why would someone say I hate you to their boss? Let's say when they don't want to, right? They're like, their boss is like, sorry, you can't take off Monday. And they're like, I hate you. You know, like, yeah, I wouldn't want my kid to say that. I'd want them to like manage that disappointment. <laughs> well, the reason they say that is because they don't have the skill to manage disappointment, okay? And if they mm. did say I hate you, yeah, their boss might, I don't know if they'd say they're fired, but who knows, there'd be some quote consequence. I find it interesting that when I think about that arc and someone says, so like, don't you want to prepare your kids for the real world? Yeah, I want my kid to be the 24-year-old who doesn't say I hate you. I don't want them to go being like, if I say it, th and then that's going to happen. I want them to have the skill before to manage themselves, right? So yes, there will be consequences, quote, in adult life, but don't we want our kids to have the skills so they don't get themselves into those situations in the first place? Like the mm. answer isn't, I'm going to give them the consequences now. It's like, why don't I do the things now so that my kids make good decisions when they're older. <laughs> like that to me is just like much more effective. Right. <laughs> so that they're not faced with the consequence. They're not making the bad choices or whatever to begin with. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then the other thing that I think we forget a lot is this word choice or decision that I think is like a really interesting thing we apply to behavior. Because like I can tell you, if my kid at age 24 got told by, you know, his boss, like, sorry, you can't take that vacation day. He's like, I hate you. I can't imagine my kid would be saying, I feel disappointed. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say I hate you to my boss. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally going to do that. Okay, I'm going to do it right now. Like no one makes that decision. They reacted. Mm, they reacted. Mm -hmm. We react in these ways because our feelings overpower our skills. Every time. A feeling yeah. overpowers a skill to manage the feeling. The answer then isn't to blame the feeling. The answer isn't to give a consequence, it's to build up the skills. And if we think our kids, when they're six years old and they've said, I hate you, and they're sent to their room, if you think your six-year-old is sitting saying, hmm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to Google skills for anger management. And I guess my parents aren't teaching me, but I'm just going to like, that's what I'm going to do in my time alone in my room. I'm just going to like teach myself. Like that is not what's happening. They feel mm. alone. They feel ashamed. They feel scared. Mm -hmm. They feel resentful for being misunderstood. And all of that adds on to their feeling they had in the first place. So the next time they feel that feeling, they're now less able to manage it. Not because they're a bad kid, but because they've ironically added on all the elements that makes dysregulation more possible. So we want to do the opposite. That's not being mm. easy on your kid. That's actually being effective, right? And I think Right, like if I go back to myself and everyone here to me, this always proves the point. Like if I had a horrible day, okay, like even small things, like I spilled my coffee in the morning and it went all over my shirt and then I lost $20 and then I missed my train, okay? Like no one died, but just a series of bad events. And then I get home and my husband goes, oh, you you forgot to get toilet paper today? 
Okay. Like, I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd probably like lay into him, you know, for that mm. innocent question. What are you talking about? You know, I hate you. You don't do anything. I don't know. Right. I'd say something like that. Mm. Okay. Now I want everyone to picture their partner, or maybe it's a roommate saying, what horrible person talks to me that way? Go to your room and no iPad for a week. <laughs> like, okay. Mm. Like, is mm-hmm. that going to help me? Like, what would happen next? Versus right. if my husband did have the composure to say, whoa, that is like really not okay to say to me and Becky, like you must be upset about other things. Right. To talk to me that way. And I care more about what's going on inside you than how that manifests in your tone. So like I know I need a moment to take a couple deep breaths, but then let's actually talk about what's going on. Like I mm. want to know the human being who would say, oh, my husband like really lets me get away with yelling at him and I'm going to be more likely to yell at him later. Like, I just think that is the most nasty view of humans and human behavior. And like, I I just, I will never buy into it. And I think that's Mm. like where we are not a collection of like reinforcement interventions. Like that Mm. is not true. If someone would say, wow, Becky, your husband just reinforced your yelling. Like no way. My husband saw the good person inside me was struggling. And I now feel closer to him. I feel regulated. And I think we all know I will be more appreciative of him and less likely to yell at him going forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it really brings me back to your principle about what our job is in parenting, right? Is our job to like harshly prepare them for the world? Is it to make them happy and alleviate all of their challenging situations like we talked about in our anxiety for school, like back to school episode? Like what is our job and our role here? And you tackle that in your principles in a couple of interesting ways, like what our true goal is in parenting and and what can we elaborate on there? Yeah. So I remember (laughs) sometimes, you know, I I heard someone say this and I like couldn't help myself. I think I was with a friend who's like, Becky, please don't like jump in there, you know, because sometimes I can't can't help myself. So I was like, don't you just want your kids to be happy? You know, and this is something I hear all the time. And I do, I have a hard time like biting my tongue and just like playing it cool. My friends like roll their eyes. I go, oh, she's going to like launch into the resilience thing and, you know, can't bring. bring Like me on the bench with the (laughs) mom or whatever, where I'm like, um, are you sure that's why? Like, right, exactly. (laughs) Isn't it fun to be the friend of a therapist? Don't you think it's so fun? I'm sure it's amazing. (laughs) So fun. But but I think this is, it's just such a powerful way to think about it, right? So one of my chapters is resilience over happiness. And when I say to someone, no, that's not just the thing I want for my kids to be happy. You know, just to clarify, that doesn't mean I want my kids to be unhappy. Like, like we don't have to, you know, make it one or the other. That's, it's not like that's my goal either. But here's the really tricky thing, I think, about happiness as a goal. And I think you and I, Erica, probably both see a lot of people and adults over the years who probably grew up in homes with 100% well-intentioned, even loving parents who had happiness as a goal. And you mm. see the way I think it's built so much anxiety in their life because When we make our goal for our kids to be happy, we see their distress as the enemy. Hmm. So then when they feel left out, when they feel jealous, we look essentially to bring on the happy instead of to bring on the distress tolerance. And it's very different intervention. Hmm. So for example, if my kid said, oh, this boy's having a sleepover birthday party and he invited all of our friends and he didn't invite me, right? And my son is really sad, let's say, okay? From a happiness as goal, I'd probably say this. I'd say, I don't know, I might be like, well, you don't even like him anyway. Or, hey, kid A, B, and C weren't invited. Why don't you call them and you'll have a party? And I know they're 
I don't know, having five balloons at their party and we'll have 10, right? And and like, let's make you happy. Okay. Mm. Now, a different intervention is, is actually in some ways something simpler. Wow, you really wish you were invited to that party. Mm-hmm. Like that feels really bad. And now if a parent's wondering, listening, oh, so I shouldn't plan the party. Like, yeah, we could we could do other things for our kids to fill their lives. But the goal in this moment isn't to get my kid to happy right away. It's to show them that we can get through moments of being left out, of being jealous, of being sad. Mm-hmm. And why does this really matter? Well, let's fast forward. Okay. Let's fast forward. And now your kid is 30. Okay. And they get fired from a job. It's really hard to find the happy when you get fired from a job. Right. Mm -hmm. Or let's say it's a pandemic and you're like, wow, my whole world just changed. Yeah. Searching for the happy in a moment when you can't tolerate distress is really the experience of anxiety. It's saying, I can't be in my body right now. I don't know how to be in my body. I'm scared of this feeling. I'm not supposed to feel this way. Everyone always helped me get out of this feeling to a different one right away. So that's the circuit my body activates. Where's the happy? Where's the happy? Where's the happy? Sometimes you can't find the happy. And that doesn't have to mean you have a life of sadness. Ironically, when you're in a situation that's objectively tough and you have tolerant skills for those feelings, the happiness finds you so much faster because Mm. you manage those feelings. I always think we have a jar of feelings. And when we have skills to manage a feeling, it cushions it from taking over the whole jar. When we don't have that cushion, the distress of a situation actually fills up the whole thing. And we're saying, oh no, where's the happy? Where's the happy? When we say, oh yeah, I got fired from a job. It makes sense. I'm feeling down today. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. You're going to be much more able to find joy and happiness. The happiness is going to find you because you actually have space for it. And so thinking about you know, I want my kids to be comfortable being them in the widest range of feelings possible. Some are going to be more enjoyable for sure, but I want them to feel like almost all the feelings in the world have a home in them because I think if they go into adulthood with that experience, like they'll be able to take on challenges They'll be able to bounce back from hard times. Mm -hmm. They'll be able to be in close relationships. They'll be able to be at home with themselves and they feel vulnerable. And to me, those things, ironically, are the things that lead to overall happiness rather than Mm -hmm. the constant search for a feeling you're not having. Mm -hmm. Being able to feel like you can be safe and sturdy in the chaos, right? Or being able to find the safe waters or find home amongst like the life that might be going chaotic around you is a skill that we provide for our children, like you said, when they're younger and that they learn to cultivate for themselves, carry this safety with them or this regulation with them wherever they go as they grow up and can better navigate those stressful situations and not be overcome by them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And for all the listeners here, like to me, again, like I hear an idea like from someone else. I'm like, can you translate that into a strategy? Because I want to do the ideas. So I think an idea Mm -hmm. that can, that idea how to translate into a strategy is something I call like the feelings bench, right? So if everyone right now picks their, their kid in a garden, let's say something like that, and there's just like a ton of benches, right? And this is the garden of life. Okay. And some of those benches, you know, it's an excitement bench. It's a, I was invited to a party bench. It was a, I was not invited to a party bench. It was I'm sad bench. I'm disappointed. I'm nervous. Okay. In my mind, if this is the garden of life, I hope my kids feel comfortable like sitting on all the benches that none of them, they're like, oh, oh no. Right. And often what happens in our kids' childhoods is like they're already on the bench. Like they come home and they say, mm. you know, nobody played with me on the playground. 
Okay. So they're sitting on the, nobody played with me on the playground bench, or maybe we want to name it, um, I felt lonely bench. I don't know, right? So they're sitting there. Now, as a parent, we often have the instinct to do one of two things. We see a sunnier bench and we're like, come on, like, let's, let's, just, let's just go there, right? Mm. You know, but remember yesterday when we went for ice cream or, you know, remember the other day when you played soccer, right? So we're trying to pull them off the bench. Or we kind of like find them on the bench and we think we have this like magic wand and we're going to like poof, change it to like some other bench, you know, like, oh, so you had the opportunity to read. Like you love to read when you're, you know, sitting alone at recess or, you know, something like that, right? Let's enter the toxic positivity bench, exactly. right? Where it's like, exactly. you should be great. Like whatever, we try and put a positive spin on it. That's right. Yeah. And when you try to convince your child to get off the bench, come over here instead, look at the positive sign. What you do is you make them more fearful of the bench. So the next time they feel that feeling, they remember aloneness. I'm not supposed to feel this way. Nobody was there for me. Now they're more fearful of that feeling. Mm -hmm. If you try to change the bench, we do something like really sad for kids. We build their self-doubt. Oh, I guess I'm not such a good feeler of my feelings after all. I do have a history of misperceiving things. And if you really want to fast forward in a scary way for our kids, and we think about especially I do, I think about like my daughter and the way... As women, so many of us have like questioned, wait, is that a big deal, right? Or like when someone says mm -hmm. to my daughter one day, come home with me, it's not a big deal, or to my son. I want her to say, if it's how she feels, hey, why would you say that to me? I already told you no. I do know how I feel. Mm -hmm. You don't know how I feel. And that comes from mm -hmm. knowing her own feelings. And that doesn't start mm -hmm. in college and it doesn't start in teenage years. It starts when our kids are sitting on a feelings bench and how we respond. So what do we do when they're on a bench? It's actually the simplest thing. You sit with them. You literally sit down. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what to say, it's actually a great strategy because you're like, oh, so when they say no one played with me, I guess I could literally just sit next to them and do what I do on a bench and put my arm around. Beautiful. You did it. Mm -hmm. How else can you sit on a bench? You say, tell me more. Or to me, this is one of my favorite lines when our kid has a hard time. I'm so glad you're talking to me about this. It's really important. Mm -hmm. And if you think about having a tough day, and again, you felt left out. Oh, my friends didn't invite me to a lunch and I feel like I have no friends anymore. And you told a friend or a partner or your mom or your dad. And they said, wow, Eric, I'm really glad you're talking to me about this. It's really important. Like mm -hmm. immediately, like mm -hmm. kind of feel better, right? You sit with them. And then I always love this imagery of this. Now, instead of sitting on a bench alone, like I feel like a kid has a bench warmer, mm -hmm. like, right? Like you literally have someone else there. And then our kids get off their benches when they're ready. And then kind of they find another. And if they want you there, right, we find them there. Yeah. And I think that's the whole idea of building resilience because now your kid's going to be walking around that same garden in adulthood. And now think mm -hmm. about the freedom to be like, no matter what bench I find myself on, I feel at home here. Mm. Like it's so freeing. Yeah. Feel safe, can yes. tolerate, feel like I can cope. All of those things that you highlight in the yes. book. And like I have a list. I'm like looking right now at my list of questions and we got through like half of them, but I can't say enough about the work that you're doing and the book and all the things that we didn't get to that, you know, I encourage people. I know that the book is on pre-order right now and I know that it drops on September 13th, but if they align with you and the things that you've been talking about today, you go through so much more about like boundaries and telling the truth and confirming perceptions and how to build their own trust in themselves. Like there's so many layers there that I was just like, oh, this is so good. So I encourage people to, you know, seek this book out. It'll be their manual, as you said, both values and foundations wise and practical skills wise. 
as well. So incredibly excited about the work you put out into the world. Oh, thank you, Erica. I've loved connecting with you from the beginning. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity to talk to your loyal audience who loves you so much about, you know, this topic that I know we're both so interested in. And I'll just say for anyone listening, you know, just being someone who's like listening to Erica's podcast, being someone who's willing to reflect and think through things and be mindful. Like I I really feel like self-reflection is like an act of bravery, right? It's hard Mm. and it's hard work. And it's so easy to then say like, oh, I'm not doing this or I'm not doing this. And I think it's always a nice time to pause and just like, if I listen to this podcast, like I did a lot today. Mm-hmm. Like I did enough today. Mm-hmm. That's what I would leave everyone with. <laughs> yeah. It takes that, that courage to even entertain parenting differently. Yes. Right? So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Erica. It's always such a treat when Dr. Becky joins us on the show. The story she shares and the analogies that she uses always resonate so deeply with me. If you're anything like me and you were raised in a rocky family environment or many skills of resilience weren't even modeled to you and maybe you struggled to regulate your own emotions, let alone show up and be this coach for your child in some of their most difficult moments. This is one of the reasons that brings so many moms and parents into therapy with our wellness team. Because the reality is many of us weren't taught these skills and now we're thrown into this role where we've also got to teach them to our littles. To learn more about our Canadian Wellness Center, head to happyasamother.co slash wellness. That's happyasamother.co slash wellness. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where I am having author and psychologist Dr. Darcy Lockman on the show. Darcy is the author of All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership, published by HarperCollins. She helps us explore why this pervasive inequity is happening in households when we become parents. This is a passionate conversation you do not want to miss. I'll see you back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast. To join the Happy as a Mother VIP list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to happyasamother.co slash newsletter. Until next episode, Mama, I want you to know, keep showing up, you're doing an amazing job.